White Sox Weekly, your two-hour all-access pass to everything White Sox. Drive in the air! Deep to right! It is gone! This is a presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly. It is April 8th, 2023. Probably knew that part. White Sox and Pirates coming up a little bit later this afternoon. We've got a 5 o'clock pregame show, a 5.35 first pitch, and the White Sox need to get back into the left-hand column. They have lost two in a row against the Giants and then the Pirates in that first game in Pittsburgh yesterday. And to be quite honest, they've gotten hit pretty good over the last two games. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number here on White Sox Weekly. We remind you that you can join us uh, at Guaranteed Rate Field for Miller Lite Baseball and a Brew starting at only $19. The offer includes one ticket and two beers to new and expanded seating locations across the ballpark. You must be 21 and over with a valid ID to purchase tickets. Visit WhiteSox.com slash brews. Lots to do on the show today. Honest to goodness, uh, after eight games and a three and five start and some really alarming things on the pitching side for the White Sox and some really good things on the hitting side for the White Sox, I kind of wanted to do the, the, the sandwich technique. You know, you've got the, the compliment on one side of the sandwich. You've got the negatives in the middle of the sandwich. And then you end it with the compliment on the other side of the sandwich. And I'm not telling you that I came up with this plan for the show because I walked through Walgreens and got myself a little bit of lunch for later on in the day and found out that they had a special on ice cream sandwiches. It was like a, it was like a buck fifty for the ice cream sandwich. And I'm looking at that going, Connor, you've said for years that the ice cream sandwich is one of God's gifts to mankind it might be the finest delivery system for dessert that anyone has ever thought up and it's not the sandwich you know with the chocolate chips on the ice cream you know like they roll it through the chocolate chips and you got the ice creams on the side but then again the three and five start to the season hasn't exactly been the ice cream sandwich rolled through chocolate chips with all kinds of good thing yet we're getting there at least that's the hope and the white Sox will certainly need to take care of business today Saturday and tomorrow, Sunday, against the Pirates to get themselves back to 500 before they head out to what is looking more and more like a meaningful series against the Minnesota Twins on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Just kind of taking a look, a snapshot at the division. The White Sox are in third place at 3-5. and five. On top of the crew are the Minnesota Twins then the Cleveland Guardians. Twins are 5-2. and two, Cleveland's 5-3. and three. Minnesota's gotten off to a great start. They've pitched incredibly well. The Guardians have kind of been the Guardians team-wise, I, I think. And the White Sox are 3-5. and five. The Tigers are 2-5. and five. The Kansas City Royals are 2-6. and six. And they have been, uh, each one of those teams kind of beat around a little bit. The Sox, I, you know, I don't know how you define the start to the season. Feel free to let me know if you've got a word or two to how you kind of feel about this so far. I would imagine it's it's not great, but from my perspective, they've held their own, but taken some shots. Right? I mean, this is this is a boxing match where you're very much in it, but you did have a lip bloodied in, in the first round or so. It is, and I know this is no one's favorite term to discuss early on in a baseball season where not everything's going your way. I think we have a tendency to leave spring training and watch some of the World Baseball Classic like we did in this spring and get all amped up about some players who are doing well and some players who aren't, about roster moves that have been made and roster moves that haven't been made, and about pitches that got hit real far and 
pitches that got swung at and missed. I, I understand it, but it is 162 games. And it is early. However, it's not so early that these games don't matter. At the end of the day, a win in April or May is worth, uh, March rather, is just worth just as much you know, as a win in you know, August or September. So a 3-5 and five start, the way things looked, does have a couple of eyebrows raised at least over here. I think the offense, the lineup, the way things have been constructed here offensively has been working so far. You look at the runs scored for the White Sox, 41 in total. That's right up there with some of the league leaders. The Orioles have scored 41. The Cleveland Guardians have scored 41. Heck, the White Sox have scored the second tied for the second most runs in the American League. Only the Tampa Bay Rays, who are 7-0, by the way, have scored more runs with 53. On the National League side, there's a team or two that have scored more than 41. The Dodgers, the Brewers, the Atlanta Braves, each of them on the top of their respective divisions, they've scored more than 41, but 41 has been more than enough to hang you in a whole bunch of ball games. And I think that's really, you know, kind of the the overall, the 10,000-foot view on eight games, if you can have one, is that the White Sox really have been in most of their games, even though they've given up double-digit runs in three of the last four. A couple hits, maybe one against the Pirates, even yesterday, and you're making what was a 16-6 to is look a lot different. That said, I don't think you necessarily look at the starts by Lance Lynn, by Lucas Giolito yesterday, by Michael Kopech in the home opener and go, don't worry, everything's fine, shrug your shoulders and move on. It's, it's difficult from a coaching perspective to say anything other than that. But there are some, you know, kind of the under the hood or even more glaring um, kind of numbers or trends that make you go, okay, something's got to change there. You know, a little bit more effectiveness needs to be found here, or a, a different plan of attack may need to be utilized by a couple different players, pitchers, bullpen guys, or maybe even coaching staff. So I, I think overall, you've seen what the White Sox are capable of, how they've been constructed, the idea behind how they want to win games early on in this season. And you've also seen some of the soft underbelly, for sure, uh, of, of pitching performances gone awry. I, I wanted to you know, kind of start the day talking a little bit about what's coming up this afternoon. And we'll get to the pregame show a little later on, right about 5 o'clock or so. Is when, well, at, at five, our, our executive producer, Brendan Riley, is looking at me. No, we start at 5. Thank you. It's right at 5, like it always is. Uh, and then first pitch, 535. Mike Clevenger gets the ball for the White Sox today. And and in his start against the Astros, his first start, he was living at the edges of the strike zone. And and typically, in, in Mike Clevenger fashion, toward the top end of the strike zone with the fastball that he's got. And he's pitched fairly well in that game against the Astros. Lived with a little more traffic, and the Astros certainly left a few base runners on in that series, in the four games, against the White Sox to open the year. Overall, a pretty good start from Clevenger, and the hope is that he can stay around the edges of those strike zone of the strike zone against the Pirates this afternoon. So Clevenger starts for the Sox. You know, or at least if you'd watched a lot of last season, you know Vince Velasquez. He was a member of the White Sox last year. Made a couple of starts, mostly used as a long reliever late in the year. Pirates snapped him up, like what they saw. He's in the starting rotation. He's 0-1 with a 5-7-9 ERA. Vince Velasquez is kind of that, you know, fastball slider guy. If the fastball's in and around the strike zone, it can be tough to hit. He can, obviously, get pretty wild. I don't say obviously because we'd seen it at times. But he also, you know, I, I won't soon forget. I, I think part of it is because I was I was out with uh, COVID at the time. This was last year. 
uh, a start that Vince Velasquez made against the Angels, who were the best offense in baseball, certainly in the American League at the time. And Vince Velasquez held him scoreless, I think, through uh, five and two thirds. He was, you know, remember facing down Mike Trout in a huge at bat with the uh, at the time the game on the line. The rains came down. Joe Brand was in for me, and who was who was supposed to be in for Len. Uh, it was it was kind of a wild day, but a really good start for Vince Velasquez. He is capable of holding an offense quiet if that fastball slider combination is is there for him. So those are kind of the pitching matchups today. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the pregame show, like I said. The lineup is out for the White Sox. And it looks, you know, by and large, like the lineup Pedro Grafol has put out against right-handers so far this year. Tim Anderson is at the top. He's playing shortstop. Luis Robert has center field. My goodness, has he been solid to start the season. Andrew Benintendi is batting third. Yoan Moncada in the lineup, batting four. A little bit more on Moncada here before we uh, get too far down the road. Andrew Vaughn's at first base, batting five. Gavin Sheets is the designated hitter today. Seven, eight, and nine are Yasmani Grandal catching Oscar Colas in right field and Elvis Andrews at second base. Both of them with career milestones over the last couple of days, which I thought were pretty cool, and you'll hear them a bit later on in the show as well. I, I think... First and foremost about this lineup, what what matters here, from my perspective, is Andrew Benintendi batting third. I, I think we'd gone through most of spring, and I, I talked about it with you here on White Sox Weekly, that you kind of saw Andrew Benintendi as a, as a two-hitter, right? He'd spent most time there at that point in the lineup than he had in any other spot. He'd seen a lot of success there. Not that he hasn't in the three spot, incidentally. But just, you know, as the way this lineup kind of got constructed, it felt like Benintendi was more of that one or two guy than he would be the three hitter. So I'm interested, you know, to kind of hear from Pedro Grafal. And I, I wonder if Len Casper's conversation with Pedro today kind of delves into this a little bit. What he sees from that particular profile or from that particular spot or about that roster um, or that lineup protection that makes Benintendi the right guy in the three spot. Now, the obvious answer today is, well, you don't have Eloy Jimenez. He's on the IL with a hamstring strain, and you don't have that big bopper, that right-hander, that designated hitter to slide right into things and either be that three or four hitter. But he has, Benintendi, been the three hitter with Jimenez in the lineup before. He handles the bat well, Benintendi does, no doubt about that. And, you know, the lefty-righty matchup today seems to you know fit well for him. PNC is a big, big ballpark, uh, a lot like the ballpark that he played in Kansas City uh, just a couple of years ago, unlike the ballpark he played at in Boston or, or New York, but certainly a big, big outfield. And the hope was that he'd tap into Benintendi with a little bit more power playing in some friendlier ballparks. This one, though, doesn't really fit that description. I guess the key here, at least to get things started, would be getting out to an early lead, even though the White Sox had squandered one yesterday. Tim Anderson and Luis Robert couldn't be hotter at the top of this lineup, setting things up for Benintendi, Moncada, and Vaughn today. So hopefully there's a couple of hits early, a couple of action, a lot of action on the base pads, and uh, some havoc for Vince Velasquez, Benintendi in that three spot. I think, you know, a few other things about where this lineup is and where it's headed revolve around Eloy Jimenez. Obviously not in the lineup today and might be out two to three weeks with the hamstring injury uh, that he suffered a few days ago going from first to third. I was in the clubhouse and listening when Eloy was talking to reporters uh, about the injury, about what had happened, and the mood that, I mean, quite to me, he seemed 
tired of it. You know, I, he, and I, I think you can kind of understand where he's coming from. He didn't want to be hurt, hasn't wanted to be hurt his entire career. He has had injuries pop up for him in some of the most inopportune moments. He's had injuries pop up in him uh, in some of the most innocuous moments of his career. Things that seem like they ought to be just fine at times have popped up for him, and he seems, you know, done with it. At the end of his media session, Eloy said, I, this is going to be the last time we talk about injuries this year, implying that he doesn't intend to be hurt again. And he said in that interview session as well that on that day, the day he was placed on the IL, his first day out, he was in the weight room, lifting, running a little bit, and felt like he could be available to pinch hit or play late if they needed him right now. And that's a great sign for how he's feeling with that hamstring strain. At least from my perspective, it is. Hopefully that means that he might be able to come back in just the 10 days he's going to have to stay on the IL. Again, that initial timeline Closer to two or three weeks is what the White Sox said. So that's you know kind of close to the end of April. The the good news, if you can find some, certainly Aloy Jimenez being on the injured list is not good news for any ball club, much less the White Sox. But the good news there is this. If there is a spot, you know, that DH slug kind of spot where you can handle a little bit of adversity, a little bit of injury, a little bit of time away from Aloy Jimenez, that's the spot you can probably handle it in. Whether it's Jake Berger or Gavin Sheets playing on either side of the lefty-righty platoon, Berger the right-hander, of course, and Gavin Sheets the lefty who's going to play against the right-hander Velasquez today, those guys are well-suited to fill in. They have had the responsibility of being sluggers throughout their career, and that is a responsibility. They've understood at times, uh, or rather over the last year or so, how to DH, which is a skill you've got to learn. Eloy learned that late last year. It looked like Gavin Sheets has been working really hard on that over the last year or so. Coffee is his secret. He's all caffeined up when he's playing. Uh, And Jake Berger, because of some of the defensive limitations that he's shown, has had to DH and has, I mean, if yesterday didn't prove anything to you, my goodness, he kind of figured out how to be that whole DH guy. You'll hear, I want to talk a little bit more about Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger, how they figure to be kind of two ends of the platoon, and which one maybe has a chance of earning a bit more playing time against the same-handed pitcher in uh, for the White Sox over the next couple of weeks, or at least as long as Eloy Jimenez is out. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. We're talking White Sox because this is White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Instagram at ESPN underscore Chicago. Swing and a base hit to right. Robert scores. Here comes Benintendi, and he's going to make it. It's a two-run single. Gavin Sheets has driven in three today, and they have broken it open. It's 7-1, to one, and that will be it for Jelly. 1-1 one, one coming. Swing and a high fly left field. And it's going to go! Flooping a blast. It's 5-2. to two. Oh, Jake Berger's home run off Rich Hill yesterday. The second career home run for him off the ageless Rich Hill. And then, of course, you heard Gavin Sheets with the RBI in the uh, second game of the Giants series, if memory serves. Big thanks to uh, Kendra Smith and... Brendan Riley, our producers on the other side for cutting up those highlights, and Len Casper for calling them, of course. Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger look to be the best options for the White Sox, splitting the DH as a platoon spot over the next little bit with Eloy Jimenez on the injured list with a strained hamstring. 
They're both sluggers. You know that. The Berger home run. Well, I should say this. Let's go back. When he got called up and thrown into the lineup first day after Eloy Jimenez had gone down, he had a double off the wall in left field at guaranteed rate field. It was like 116.7 miles an hour off the bat. And that was the hardest hit baseball of his stat track, stat cast tracked. That is much more difficult to say than when you lead up to it. Of his stat cast tracked hit balls. Whoa, wow. So anyway, he hit it really hard. It was the second hardest hit ball of any White Sox since the beginning of last year. Luis Robert had like a 118-mile-an-hour lineout last year at some point late in the season. I think it was August. Berger can absolutely crush. And Pedro Grifol told reporters when Berger came back up and when Berger was sent out of camp and to AAA Charlotte that this was the hardest send-down that he had to deal with with his, during this, um, all the send-outs you got to make as a, as a manager in his first go-round in the White Sox because he saw Jake as very much a big-league hitter. And I think, White Sox fans, you've seen the same thing over the last little bit. Sure, he's a guy that's got some swing and miss in the profile. What home run hitters don't in this day and age, right? There's just not many. There's Jordan Alvarez, there's Mike Trout, and even those guys are approaching the 100 strikeout mark at some point in the season, certainly if they're not having their best years. The point is to say this, when you slug the way it looks like Berger can and the White Sox are able to get him into, and Sheets for that matter. Most of what I'm, I'm kind of talking about Berger side kind of goes for the uh, the Sheets profile as well. When you're able to get them against the matchups you need, right, the lefty Sheets against the righty Vasquez today or the righty Berger against the lefty Rich Hill yesterday, then you're kind of upping their ability to, you know, to mash and do that damage early in games. I think what also happened yesterday, and I liked this a lot from Pedro Grifol, is the first at-bat Berger had against Rich Hill, he doubled just off the top of the wall right center field. I mean, this thing was that far from being the first home run of the game instead of just the uh, the double. Then he homered off Rich Hill. So Grifol, after Berger comes up a third time, and as the game is very much in the balance, I think it was a five-seven or a seven-five game at the time. Pirates were had taken the lead back and kind of a wild thing. Berger comes up, lefties out of the bullpen for the Pirates. Uh, pardon, right-handers out of the bullpen for the Pirates. Righty, righty, on Berger because of the two at bats that he had had, the results that he'd earned, he earned another at bat. Grifol let him hit against the right-hander, and I think he'd get one more at bat against the right-hander as well. I've always thought that especially with young players, and although Berger, you know, is, is a an, an older young player, he's still, you know, exposure wise, he's had the two years laid up with the Achilles issues. I uh, had the pandemic season of twenty twenty where you, everybody was kinda if you weren't at the alt site and, and Berger was, you were really dealing with a lot of, you know, how do I find live pitching? How do I develop from here? DJ talks about this a lot. There there are a lot of guys, Jesse Schultons being one of them, who we'll talk about in a bit. He made his big league debut yesterday for the White Sox and pitched really well. A lot of guys kind of making their debuts now at age 27, 28, 29, who could have done it perhaps two years ago, but because of the pandemic have kind of missed that developmental window. Or, you know, organizations have had to move on to other prospects or kind of shift focus a little bit to either, depending on what organization you're talking about, winning now and pushing those kind of prospects, those kind of players into the roster, or winning down the line and developing some of it. So the middle ground, the middle part of that bell curve kind of got squeezed a little bit narrower than you might have otherwise done it. 
all that to say, the idea of a young player who, who seems to have a decided platoon split, you, you want to see if Jake can hit right-handers. And you want to see if Gavin can hit left-handers. But you also, you know, given the way the White Sox are and very much needing to get back to 500 before they go face the Twins this coming week, you want to win ball games now. So balancing that idea of finding development at the big league level for players, you know, finding righty on right at bats for Berger, finding lefty on lefty at bats for Sheets, is a difficult thing to balance. And I thought that that's one of the things that Tony La Russa did really well in his first year managing the White Sox. I go back to this a lot because I don't know that I've seen, you know, up close the way I did that season, uh, a manager deal with this situation better than I have Tony La Russa. Or, or maybe even, you know, more... Um, acutely than Tony did with Andrew Vaughn. He found the right spots to play him. He found righty-righty matchups that he could exploit. Vaughn's kind of swing plane matched up against what the pitcher was throwing. He let him or tried to engineer situations he could succeed in in righty-righty matchups. And you you saw the season that Vaughn had for the first three months or so. There is a, a measure of protection that a young player needs in order to develop in most cases. It is rare, and even in situations where you've got like Julio Rodriguez, the Mariners last year in a rookie season where he's absolutely you know world beater, that kind of thing, you still need to, at times, kind of look at areas and protect a rookie a little bit. For Rodriguez, it wasn't so much at the plate, though there were a lot of strikeouts, and I, I think a month of performance late in the season where it was like, ooh, okay, he's got to pick it back up. But for the Mariners last year, it was very much more about his defense. And not like, oh, you got to try a little harder, Rook. No, it was, dude, stop running into walls. Stop throwing your body all around. We need you for the entire 162. Uh, Bryce Harper had a similar situation when he was with the Nationals coming up at the time, right? There was a lot of conversation in his first few years. Bryce, you got to, I mean, you love the haircut and the under and the whole thing. It's great. No one had seen that. Well, hadn't seen that since like the 80s and the John Crook kind of flowing everything. But he was throwing himself at, 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 outfield walls and that's a tough matchup for an outfielder i think the wall's undefeated so you do have to take young players and and find places to challenge them but also find places to protect them and i think that then with gavin sheets and jake berger needing to play a lot Naloy jimenez out of the lineup for at least the next eight or nine days that now becomes in my mind, one of Pedro Grafal's greatest challenges on the hitting side of things early on in his managerial career. The the other one would have been Oscar Colas. And we'll talk about Oscar a little bit later on, but I do think, you know, because he is a rookie and you want to make sure he's getting a lot of playing time. You see the skill set available to you. Right field has, you know, just a he's got a he's got a pathway to being this team's everyday right fielder, the guy you can really rely on uh, to be out there defensively to maybe cover a little bit in center, uh, to be a lefty that can mash right-handers, but also take dutiful at-bats against lefties. That That's all there for Oscar in terms of a player profile and in terms of how this roster is kind of constructed to allow for him to take those at-bats and take those, uh, take those steps in right field. Um, but how you do it, I think, matters just as much as the player you're doing it with. So uh, we'll talk later in the show about what we've seen from Oscar, but you know, so far... I, all I've got is a big thumbs up for the kid, and congratulations on his first big league home run. One of the White Sox player, or another White Sox player, who's really, really been showing you uh, what he's capable of again has been Luis Robert. 
I have absolutely been blown away with what he's looked like defensively. And it's done a lot to save the White Sox runs in games that they've won this year. It, listen, it's just a three and five start. It's not been a lot of baseball. But you think about the slugging percentage that the White Sox have given up, whether that be starters or relievers. And you think about the fly balls that Luis Robert has run down, the home run that he brought back. Those, in, a, in the hands of a lesser center fielder, those maybe result in more runs and quite possibly a different record for the White Sox. I think he's probably won you one game already. More about Luis Robert and what he's meant for the 23 White Sox when we come back. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. You want to talk a little Sox? You want to talk a little baseball? We're here for you. Also, you can join us at Guaranteed Rate Field Saturday, April 15th. The White Sox take on the Baltimore Orioles at 1.10 p.m. And the first 15,000 fans will receive a 1993 American League West Division Champs crew neck presented by Coke Zero Sugar. I've seen this crew neck. It is, and it's now in fashion for people to wear stuff that I wore to photo day in 93. And this looks exactly like 1993 photo day at St. Jude's. Like this is this is that crew neck. It looks terrific. You're going to want to get yourself one. And if you're one of the first 15,000 at the ballpark on April 15th, you can. To purchase tickets, visit WhiteSox.com slash promos. More White Sox Weekly on the other side. It's the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Carmen and Yurko, noon to two weekdays, ESPN Chicago. Tucker hits a high fly out of the very deep right center. Robert leaps, and he made the catch. Oh, what a catch. Luis Robert Jr. Swinging a drive deep to right field, way back there, and gone. It's a home run. He just got it over the railing. And partner, we are tied 7-7 in the fifth. Len Casper with the call right here on the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, join us for the White Sox Arbor Day celebration presented by Morton Arboretum. Featuring post-game fireworks taking place at Guaranteed Rate Field Friday, April 28th. As the White Sox take on the Tampa Bay Rays at 6.10 p.m. Rays are undefeated. They're 7-0. Uh, to purchase tickets, visit WhiteSox.com slash Morton a portion of each ticket sold is being donated back to the Morton Arboretum, which is awesome because that place is awesome. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. You heard all the highlights. They're courtesy, really, of Luis Robert. My goodness, has he been good. I mean, really, really, really good. Um, amidst a 3-5 and five start, and White Sox starters getting shelled at times, and some bullpen arms Walking the ballpark. It, it, it's been an up and down start to the year. There is no doubt about it. But if you drew me a roadmap, like if we went back a week and a half ago and I asked you, Connor, or you, I, I guess I'm asking you, so you wouldn't start with Connor. I asked you, what do the White Sox have to do? Who needs to be great for the White Sox to win in 2023? Who's got to be great? I would bet that the top of your list, if it weren't the first name that you gave me, it would be the second and that would be Luis Robert. Let me just go through a couple of things real quickly for you. Luis Robert, and I just look at a baseball reference right now because it's the page that's loading. Fangraphs is still spinning, and I think that's a me thing, not a Fangraphs thing. I love them both. Wins above replacement, 
for all major league players right now. Luis Robert is at the top of the list. He has been worth one win already. That's um, that's awesome. In terms of war position players, wins above replacement position players, Luis Robert, he has been worth one win already. Offensive war, right? You take the defense out because you're saying to me, Connor, baseball references long value defense a little bit more than Fangraphs has in its war compilations, in the, in the algorithms, in the math, right? He's making a lot of great catches, and that's been fantastic. He keeps runs off the board. Run prevention is a huge part of baseball here in 2023. But tell me what he's done with the stick. I see a lot of strikeouts. Well, I'll tell you. Offensive wins above replacement. Robert's a top 10 guy. 0.6 wins above replacement. For reference, the top guy in baseball has a 0.8 win above replacement. That's Brian Reynolds with that three-run jack yesterday off Lucas Giolito. He's at the top of the list. Guys like uh, Adam Duvall and Brian Anderson to the Milwaukee Brewers, Xander Bogart to the Padres. I have to remind myself he's a Padre now. They're all there, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6. He's right there, tied for the third highest total in wins above replacement offensively. Defensively, because defense does matter quite a bit, and I, I maybe you've heard me harp on this before, and and maybe this will change some for me now that the shift has been banned in baseball. Maybe I, I think about where defense needs to be better on contenders a little bit differently because you have to have two infielders on either side of second base, right? But I've thought for a long time that we, kind of as a baseball-watching public, don't talk about how crucial outfield defense is in left, in center, and in right. That we don't talk about how crucial that is enough. We see a lot of flashy plays on the infield. We see range. We see shortstops going to the hole. We see the Jeter play, you know, the jump turn sort of thing. You see Matt Chapman flashing the leather going to the glove side. All that stuff, right? Yes, I get it. That's impressive. But for me, some of the most impressive, or maybe even the better way to say it is most important plays that you see in a big league game are when outfielders like Luis Robert in center field are making what look to be routine catches in the gap. Because that means he got a great jump, he's got a ton of speed, and he made an otherwise difficult play for either corner guy or a different center fielder really easy for his ball club. And those hits usually go for extra bases, whereas that ball that gets by the diving shortstop is probably a single. I, I know that you know if he tips it away or something like that, you're looking at extra bases. Sure, I get that. But typically, ball gets by an outfielder, that's another 90 feet, if not more. And with the catch that Luis Robert made, I mean, the home run robbing has been fantastic. But the catch he made sliding into the left center gap Sunday against the Astros, that's as good a catch as I've seen. I mean, if it's not top five, it's probably top ten. And and don't think that just because the show is called White Sox Weekly that we're pumping up the scores here, that we're returning more votes than we got. I mean, that's that kind of good. So for Robert to be on top of the game, on top of all of baseball in defensive wins above replacement, that's amazing. There's another reason, too, if you, you want to peel back another layer of the onion here that is crucial for the White Sox, who now you know kind of need two games against the Pirates because of some bad pitching in the last couple that you need to win a couple before you go to the face the Minnesota Twins who are playing some good baseball right now. What this means, at least for now, from, from my perspective for Luis Robert, is that the defense that was there the last year, two years, though it was good, 
It wasn't great. And now it's great again. Now it's top-end, elite, elite gold glove stuff like it was in 2020. That means to me his legs are healthy. That means that weird, you know, vertigo, blurred vision kind of thing that happened to him right around the all-star break of last year. Remember that series against the Twins where, you know, Robert was – there were like two balls hit out there in center field at target where it, it just didn't look like he saw it. And it, it might have been because he didn't see it well. He was dealing with some really weird stuff. That all seems to be behind him, and he seems to be feeling, you know, if not 100%, then 99.9, which is huge for the White Sox. Now, if you want to talk and, and you know, quibble about lineup construction, I'm here for you. You know, I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. I think it's an interesting conversation. At the top of the lineup, the White Sox have Tim Anderson, and they have Luis Robert over the last uh, week or so. I, I think that's been the lineup every single day. I have to open up the book and check, but I'm pretty sure it's been T.A. and Robert every day to start the season. I'll flip through the book while I talk, and then we'll make sure. What that means is that you've got a lot of guys, or two guys, rather, who swing a lot at the top of the lineup. And I've heard this talked about in a few places as well, and I think it's a worthy conversation, and I have flipped through every game. Yeah, T.A. and Luis at the top of the lineup every single game. I can multitask. That means that you do risk the potential with Anderson and Robert at the top of two quick outs, right? With the bat-to-ball skills that they have. I mean, T.A. can cover the entire plate, even if he's being quick-pitched by Logan Webb. And Robert can handle anything, even if he is swinging at sliders at the outside corner. There is a possibility of getting that bat to the baseball and rolling it over, making weak contact. And now you're looking at, you know, whether it's Benintendi in the three-spot or something like that, two quick outs and maybe just a couple of pitches for the starter, and you're through the first inning with two of your best hitters making quick outs, just because that's who they are. I, instead of looking at those guys and saying, well, you gotta, you got to be more patient because you're in the leadoff spot or you're in the second spot of the lineup, so we need to see more bat control, laying stuff down like we saw in the 80s. But I, I don't want any of that. I want those guys to be them, right? I want to see these skill sets that we've seen there, wherever they are in the lineup. I, I think it is worth wondering whether or not, you know, Pedro Gafol kind of mixes a lineup around a little bit. He certainly seems willing to. Um, moves a guy like Benintendi, who's a bit more patient, or Yoan Moncada, who's very, very patient, more on Moncada a little later on the show, who hits from both sides, you know, to kind of make sure, I guess, in a way, that you're drawing out that first inning as long as you can, that you are kind of, you know, issuing that tax to the opposing pitcher by having to throw a handful. Maybe that matters less these days because most starters are kind of the five-and-dive guys that we used to yell and scream about in the 90s and 2000s. You know, there aren't a lot of guys that are carrying the mail through six and seven innings anymore, and it's early in the season, so teams are going to protect those starters to begin with, right? Like, even if you do have, you know, you're on a heater or something like that, you're throwing like Dylan did in game one against the Astros, you're probably going to be taken out a little, taken down a little earlier because it's early in the season. You don't want that pitch count to totally build on you. I get that. I just talk about down the line. I think it's an interesting conversation and one that I would imagine Pedro's talking about at some point, just to share the the other side of it, right? I mean, I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with how things are set up. I do think that there are two sides to the argument, and I'll be really interested to hear, you know, kind of this, this frame from the other way. Regardless, the White Sox have gotten great Great production at the top of the lineup with Tim Anderson and Luis Robert batting there, uh, even if there have been uh, more strikeouts than than perhaps you'd like out of your more contact-oriented guys. Still, 
there's power there at the top, and that has been great to see. I also, I, I thought this was interesting too. I, I think you've you've probably, if you've listened to White Sox Weekly a handful of times over the last couple of years, you've heard us have Sarah Langs on the show. Slangs on Sports is the Twitter handle. She is one of the best, if not the best, baseball numbers analysts on the in the business for MLB Network. And I, I just, I really like what she does. I love the energy she brings to baseball. And I saw this uh, tweeted out by her. I think it's kind of a really cool fun fact. Um, during the game yesterday, after Luis Robert homered for the second time, I had two home runs. Luis Robert's home runs today, yesterday, Sarah Langs tweets out. One of them came off a 68.7 mile an hour pitch. And the other came off a 70.1 mile an hour pitch. He is the third home player to homer twice off two pitches at 70 or slower in a game since the pitch tracking era started. That's 2008. I'll tell you who the other players are, but I want in your head, I want you to mull over who the pitcher was that gave up the home runs. If you've been watching baseball like I have over the last little while, you know him. Even if you've just kind of been casually a fan of the American League, I think you probably think of a guy who threw a lot, right? You need, you need to think of a starter who made a lot of starts, lasted a long time in this game, a guy who threw slow, maybe by design, and definitely a guy who faced the White Sox a ton. The players who hit the home runs were Kurt Suzuki in 2010 and Johnny Damon in 2008. One more hint as you play along. Johnny Damon was a teammate of this pitcher for a time. You got him? It's Tim Wakefield, the knuckleballer for the Boston Red Sox. Oh, and you're not, of course it's a knuckleballer. Nobody else throws that slow. If you'd have gone with R.A. Dickey, former Cy Young Award winner, I, I would have. That's a good guess. Another knuckleballer. But Tim Wakefield was the last pitcher to give up the two home runs at 70 miles an hour or slower. Luis Robert got the two home runs yesterday. I really, really liked the fun fact. I hope you did too. If you didn't, that's my fault, and it's not Sarah's fault. You should give Sarah a follow, Slangs on Sports, and you should go ahead and get yourself, by the way, a Baseball is Best t-shirt. Proceeds from each shirt benefit the Project AL, ALS Org. Uh, it's a it's an organization uh, benefiting and bringing awareness to ALS. Sarah has the disease, and these t-shirts are awesome. They're very cool. Baseball is the best is kind of a Sarah saying, uh, and these T-shirts are really cool. Not unlike the T-shirts the White Sox have out uh, that benefit uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma research and, and cancer awareness for Liam Hendricks. Uh, we'll talk about those a little bit later on because you can still get yourself some of those as well. I, I'm kind of a sucker for T-shirts that have a good cause behind them, if you couldn't tell. 312-332-3776, that's the phone number. More White Sox Weekly when we come back. We will talk about the young rookie making an impact and holding his own for the White Sox in right field. little Oscar Colas discussion when we return on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max weekdays at 5 a.m. ESPN Chicago. On eight hits for the Sox, swinging a blast in the air, deep to center field, and that baby will go into the bullpen. First career homer, Oscar Colas. In the midst of a brutal game, or I should say at the end of a brutal game, Oscar Colas hit his first big league home run. Congratulations to Oscar. He got the silent treatment from his teammates after he hit the homer at PNC yesterday. Thought that was pretty funny. 
but he played it pretty well, like most rookies do. You get the silent treatment. If you're not familiar with the silent treatment, you know, you hit the first home run of your career, and then you come back in the dugout on the far end of the third base side. Usually it's the third base side. And then you walk through the dugout, and instead of getting handshakes and high fives and all this other kind of stuff, everybody sits there and stares at the field like nothing happened. And then as you walk by, each of your teammates kind of starts to smile a little bit. Actually, if you look at the video, and this is where I wish we had the video show working too. Uh, if you look at Lance Lynn, like as soon as Oscar walks past Lance, Lance has this just really wry grin on. Just, I mean, you can really tell that he's loving giving it to him. Uh, so, <clears throat> walks through, gets to the other end of the dugout, and then... After he's made a silent walk through the dugout, giving high fives to nobody, everybody went absolutely wild for him, jumped all over the place. Because even in a game like that where you're getting beat and be pretty good, you got to celebrate a guy's first big league home run. That's going to mean the world to him. He has, you know, you talk to DJ, you talk to anybody who played in the bigs who, who's hit a home run in the big leagues. And, and almost every single one of them, every single one of them can tell you who he hit it off of, where he hit it, and... 99% can tell you the count he was in when he got it. Almost everybody else can tell you the pitch that he got, what he was looking for, the two pitches that came prior. I mean, it's just a memory that lasts for a literal lifetime for you. So that's that's really, really cool. I love having, if you, you know, around ex-ball players or something like that, or maybe you go out to the Arizona Fall League coming up here in a few months and you run into former ball players, former White Sox out there, whatever, ask what they hit their first home run on. Ask what they remember about hitting their first big league homer, and you will get, I, I just about every time, a pretty cool story. And then what, what always happens, too, is, and maybe this will be part of Oscar's story or whatever, you know, you make light of it. You know, we were, we were getting killed by the Pirates, and I thought nobody would care. Or, you know, you're in a game where, you know, maybe you, you were out late you know, the night before. or something. It's always, you always get backstory to it, and it's a cool conversation uh, to have with, with a former ball player if you ever run into one. It's Soxfest or something like that next year. That's always a good place to do it, ask that conversation. Um, Want to talk about Oscar a little bit. Probably a good time, though, as we reach the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, to give you a couple of scores. A lot of games going on, and a couple of them having gone fun no still running wow that's a long game okay so a couple of scores uh before we talk a little bit more oscar Colas. mets lead the marlins one nothing they're in the bottom of the third uh athletics and rays are scoreless the rays remember are seven and oh they have absolutely been terrific to start the year uh, i believe they won six straight outscoring their opponents by four or more runs Red Sox lead the Tigers 6-0. Reds on top of the Phillies 1-0. Both of those games in the third. So are the Rangers and Cubs. That game is tied at 1 at Wrigley. And the Giants lead the Royals 2-0 bottom four. So the Pirates get started against the White Sox at 535. Uh, later on tonight, you're going to get the Mariners and Guardians. Cleveland's 5-3. and three. Yankees and Orioles play tonight. Dodgers and Diamondbacks late. Padres and Braves as well. That should be a good one. Cardinals and Brewers. Oh, here's one final for you. It did just go. The Twins beat the Astros 9-6. to It was tight late. Twins took a 6-5 lead. Added on a couple more. Astros got one back. The Twins are now 6-2 and to start the season. Joe Ryan got the win uh, for the Twins, and Johan Duran got to save his second of the year. So, important for the White Sox to wash away the last two games, to wash away three of the last four, to quite frankly just forget what happened in some of these blowouts and pitch 
better baseball. Uh, talk about the rotation in just a little while. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Oscar Colas. We're right up against uh, 4 o'clock, though, so we'll talk about the White Sox rookie right fielder in just 10 seconds. We'll pause it here for station identification. Live from the old National Bank State Street Studio, this is WMVP WSAG HD2, Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. Welcome back, White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight, and I was just kind of getting into the Oscar Colas experience that's been. I have been pretty impressed by Oscar, and that is to say, you haven't noticed him defensively much this year, which I think is a good thing. You know, when you when you've got a corner outfielder that is you know, they're responsible, hustling the ball in, all that kind of stuff. That's good. You don't necessarily notice that. It's not a glare, no glaring mistakes. That's been solid. The approach at the plate has been a pretty decent one. He's yet to walk, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily cause for alarm. Across the board, he's 7 for 26, hitting 269 on, uh, on base of 296. OPS is 719. The OPS plus, which is set at 100 for league average. If you're over by a point, you're 1% better than the league average player. It's all rated for uh, this year's relative offense. He's at 101. He's better than average in his first eight games. He's hit his first career home run. He's got himself a double. Two runs batted in. And he stole the base, too. So... I, I think what you're seeing from Oscar is a really good, you know, kind of introductory set to big league baseball. He's in the lineup today against the right-hander Vince Velasquez. He got yesterday off against Rich Hill until getting subbed in for that whole thing later and then hitting his first big league homer. Um, I, listen, I think this is the guy so far that the White Sox believed he could be a, a more than capable right fielder with some pop in the bat, a decent approach at the plate, some good bat-to-ball skills. I think what would be obviously really interesting to see and what we always see from rookies in this league is how pitching adjusts to those hitters, right? What adjustments are league pitchers going to make to Oscar Colas that's going to force him into a bit of a struggle for a time? Because it almost always happens. You see that little bit where a guy has... It happened to Luis Robert in his rookie season. Remember the month of September for him was a, a real rough one. That was in the pandemic 2020. So that was his third... What did we start? In July in 2020? I think that's right. So in that third month, you saw him kind of struggle some, a lot of swing and miss. He saw a lot more sliders in, in particular spots, mostly low and away. Uh, and that forced a bit of a struggle on him. He adjusted and, and got himself set and then hit that 5 billion foot home run against the A's in the playoffs. That was cool to see. I would imagine that at some point, teams are going to have a little bit of a book on Oscar. He's going to have to figure out what that is, how he's being attacked, and how to adjust back. That, I think, will be the bigger measure of what he's going to be capable of producing for the White Sox in 2023 than kind of this first run of hopefully success that he's got. I don't think that's the measure of the player. Because some guys take longer to readjust than others. Some guys don't and don't make it. Some guys readjust real quickly. Some guys kind of redefine their approach or have a, a kind of a kumbaya, come to Jesus moment and, and kind of redefine who they are. Sometimes that takes an offseason. But for Oscar, you know, that, I think that's the big next step for him. Having passed, at least on my checklist, a good number of things, a, a, a good number of reasonable expectations to his rookie season here in 2023. When we come back, 
Uh, one White Sox player celebrated another career milestone earlier this week. Want to talk about that. All, we will get into the more difficult conversation around the White Sox here in the first eight games. The pitching. All of the home runs the pitching has given up. And how to stop all of the home runs the pitching has given up. More White Sox Weekly when we come back. I'm Connor McKnight on the Hot Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly Saturdays on ESPN Chicago. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. Here on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network, I'm Connor McKnight. White Sox and Pirates coming up. Pre-game show at 5 o'clock. First pitch, 535. Mike Clevenger gets the ball for the second time in the White Sox rotation. And Vince Velazquez pitches for the second time for the Pirates. He's a starter in their rotation. They're going Rich Hill, Vince Velazquez, and then John Oviedo. The White Sox will turn to Michael Kopech on the final day of this series tomorrow. Uh, and then they're staying in rotation. Makes sense, right? Staying in rotation for the series against the Twins. It'll be Cease, then Lynn, and then Lucas Giolito on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, respectively. There are a lot of day games coming up here for the White Sox. Not like an excessive amount, but probably more than you'd imagine. There are three different start times here against the Pittsburgh Pirates yesterday, 312. Today, 535. Tomorrow, 1235. So kind of all over the board. Easter Monday, it's a 110 start in Minneapolis. Then a 640 on Tuesday. And then a 1210. That's a lot of back and forth uh, for anybody, really. Uh, then the White Sox get the off day on Thursday. Told you that I wanted to talk a bit about a career milestone for a White Sox player. And I will. And then we'll kind of get into the pitching and some of the mess that has been made of a few situations by White Sox pitchers, because that is clear, very clearly, very, very clearly been what's been uh, held them back from being, I don't know, five and three, as opposed to three and five early on here. By the way, bring your family to a White Sox game with a family pack presented by Exxon Mobil starting at $19. You'll get one ticket, one hot dog, one drink, and one bag of chips to select games. It's one of the best deals at the ballpark for tickets. Visit whitesox.com slash family. Just the other day, and he'd been sitting on it for a little while, 1999. Elvis Andrews reached a career milestone. This was really cool. Here's Len Casper with the call. Here comes the pitch. Swing and a base hit into right. There it is. Number 2,000 for Elvis Andrews. He'll move Colas around to third. Oh, he's a happy man at first, and they want that ball in the dugout. He said after the game, too, that um, he's given the ball to his mom. I, I guess he gave his first hit, 500th, 1,000th, and 1,500th hit ball to his mom. And she had texted him, I better get this baseball. And he texted her back, don't worry, it's already on the way. I think he's, he said flowers and had a, a little case. You know, those little plastic square cases you put display baseballs in. I actually saw it in his locker. It said, you know, Elvis 2000. It was, it was, it was really cool. I love that his mom has each one of those milestone baseballs. That is, uh, it's very cool. He's the 290th player to reach the 2,000-hit plateau. Pedro Grafal was excessive, and rightfully so, in his praise of Elvis Andrews. He kind of said, you know, listen, you can't, and it hit me too, Grafal was like, you can't just have a 10-year career in the bigs and get to 2,000. And in my head, I'm going, boy, 10 years, it's just such a long career, right? I mean, 10 years in the bigs, anybody would kill for that. And that's probably true, but it takes so much more to get 2,000 hits. For most guys, 15 years, 15th season 
in Major League Baseball for Elvis Andrews. Came up with the Texas Rangers. Remember, too, he was um, initially a Braves prospect, was Elvis, before going over to Texas in, I, I always forget it, it was, it was the Jared Saltalamacchia trade in 2007, for those of you old enough to remember. Neftali Feliz, Matt Harrison, Jared Saltalamacchia, all of the Texas Rangers. Uh, Mark Teixeira's in this deal as well. He was the big Major League headliner. I remember it as the Saltalamacchia trade. Because Salta Lamacchia is so fun to say, but it was definitely the, the Mark Teixeira trade. This was uh, a very, very, very big deadline deal at the time. And Elvis Andrus has proven to be one of the better pros in that trade. Probably the best outside of Mark Teixeira at a very good major league career in his own right. So Elvis Andrews comes up, plays a whole bunch of years with the Texas Rangers, has a, a legendary bromance with Adrian Beltre, who's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't know that Elvis Andrews is going to make the Hall of Fame or anything, but it's certainly a very, very good career uh, with Texas, with Oakland, and now with the Chicago White Sox over the parts of the past two seasons. So for Griffol to say you you can't just be a guy that shows up for 10 years, that just kind of it reminds you how hard it is, this business of getting hits in the bigs. And it also, I think, Reminds you that that when you have been in this game for as long as Elvis has, you can still get butterflies about a job that you've done for 15 years. You can still just kind of, at times, get in your own head just a little bit. Not to the point where it was like derailing Elvis at the plate or anything like that. He still had a good approach. He made good contact in Houston. He had a ton of family there uh, when the White Sox opened up against the Astros. He was two hits away, I think, when the season started, so he was really looking forward. And, hey, come out to the ballpark. Come see me have 2,000. It'd be really fun. Uh, Didn't get it in Houston. Really wanted it there, obviously, with all the family. Hit good contact, but he definitely said he was, you know, thinking about it some. So hopefully now that that's happened, uh, he's got number 2,000. He's able to relax a little bit. He's at 2,002 right now. So a little bit more production from Elvis Andrews would certainly go a long way for the White Sox toward the usually the bottom of the lineup. But it is, by and large, the pitching that has got to come around for the White Sox, and it's got to do so soon. Uh, over the last couple of games, I mean, obviously you've seen it. The White Sox have given up a whole ton of runs. Yesterday's ball game was a wild one for five innings, uh, seven to seven after five. There were big swings, uh, literally and 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 metaphorically. Right, Luis Robert had two home runs right back in it at seven to seven. You heard the call from Len and DJ. They were both just stunned that this thing had seesawed back and forth as many times as it had. 13 to 9 the final yesterday. Getaway day from the Giants or from the homestand against the Giants was a 16 to 6 affair. The White Sox won the middle game 7 to 3 and they lost the first one 12 to 3. Home runs have been the issue and in a big way. For me, having watched, you know, as, as close as I can and and having been around and kind of looked and seen and talked to as, as many people as I can about the efforts, about the starts, for for Lance Lynn, I think the issue had been or or was in that one game where he got blown up by the Giants, pretty clear. The fastball and cutter just weren't moving the way they need to move, whether that be velocity-wise or with some of the wrinkle that the fastball and the cutter have, obviously. If you look uh, at some of the baseball savant stats, some of the advanced tracking that, that we use quite a bit, the whiff rate, the swing and miss percentage, not not to say just the strikeout percentage, but the, the pure did a guy swing and miss at this pitch in any given count at any point in the game, 
it's down quite a bit this year on the fastball from where it was last year, from 33% down to 27%. With the cutter, uh, the whiff rate is is actually up a little bit, but the slugging percentage against is is way up. And that has been around the middle of the plate for Lance so far. And I, I understand, and I, I kind of started the show this way too, I understand that a conversation about a team that's had some struggles on, on any one facet right, of, of, of what they're trying to get done here, it, it gets frustrating for some when you say it's early. And I don't mean to say that, or, or when I say that, I don't mean to dismiss any concerns because I know the White Sox haven't, right? I, whether you're Pedro Grafal, whether you're Lance Lynn, whether you're Jake Diekman, or whether, you know, regardless, you're not just looking at your, you know, last couple of games and going, ah, oh, it's early, don't worry about it, showing up to the ballpark and doing the same thing. I promise you that's not how this works. I've, I've seen it. I've been there. When I say it's early, it is mostly to say you need more time for some of this stuff to normalize. Strikeout percentages, hard hit rates, all those kind of things, those do kind of get themselves set and organized fairly early on in the season, but definitely not after two starts. It's more closer to 60 innings, something like that, and that's going to be a minute before you really find out what a a given player, pitcher, position player is dealing with and what he's working without in a given season. I also think this about Lance specifically, and we'll kind of walk through Lance and and Kopech and Giolito a little bit here. I I mentioned this in the post-game show yesterday, and I think I talked about it on Carmen and Yurko when I was on their show on the flagship station a couple of days ago. Remember, Lance Lynn talked quite a bit about getting ramped up earlier and working pretty hard to be ramped up for his starts for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. And sometimes when that happens, and I, I would doubt that you talk about it until after you're over it, if this is indeed what is happening. It's just my guess. It's something I've seen before from guys and just something I'm wondering at is you go through a bit of a dead arm period at some point, about a month or so, six weeks into really throwing hard, right? Really throwing like you're going to throw in in meaningful games. Usually guys go through this in maybe the last week or so of spring training. Sometimes it lasts until that second week. Lance kind of ramped up a little bit earlier, and perhaps, and I'm just guessing at it because the velocity was a little down from Lance in both the forcing fastball and the cutter in his last start against the Giants and going, okay, maybe, maybe. Maybe you're just dealing with a little bit. I also think, too, that in that start against the Giants, in the first two innings, he was trying to live around the edges of the strike zone a little bit. He was you know, trying to paint with that cutter and with that fastball some and didn't get some of the pitches called that he might normally do. That's not, a, that's not me saying, oh, this is just all an umpire thing. Far from it. Lance has been around this game long enough, and I, I know he'd probably tell you this, Long enough to know that if he's not getting that pitch, he's got to change the approach a little bit. He's got to throw a better offer. He's got to make sure he's dotting that spot, right? He's got to, got to work with the home plate umpire. I think that day particularly it was DJ Rayburn, or maybe that was the next day when Tim Anderson got ejected. That was you know something that he needed to work on and work with. But if those pitches weren't there, then you have to shrink, shrink the strike zone a little bit, right? If the edges aren't there, it's got to be a little bit smaller for you, and you got to be a little bit more fine in your command and your stuff right? The measure at which your pitches are moving need to be better because you're throwing it closer to the middle of the plate. So all those things, I think, worked against Lance a little bit, a little lack of control, obviously, a little bit as well, and some good swings by the Giants, and you've got that big explosion of runs in that one particular game. 
the uh, in in Lance's game. Just kind of looking back through the box scores, the two run shot to Mike, three run shot to Michael Conforto. There was the home run by Blake Sable, his first big league home run. Jock Peterson hit the two run shot, which uh, or a two run RBI single, which was kind of a, a backbreaker in a particular situation. And the Mike Ustremski home run, the two runs, uh, two runs batted in, was the one that ch- chased Lance from the game. Eight runs in total, and that's just that's just not really Lance Lynn. And if you look back at his first start too, there were in total four walks in that game against the Astros and some of those pitches as well you know might have been toward edges of strike zones where Rob Drake is is usually calling that pitch maybe not calling that pitch maybe I don't know maybe it's just a different strike zone that day um, which happens you know that's something you have to work with that is when we talk about the human element very much what you talk about when you say that phrase he did strike out six Astros though in the five and two-thirds innings, Lance did. So I, I I find it difficult to take a look at, you know, whether it's Lance Lynn or Lucas Giolito, <clears throat> who had good starts against the Astros their first time through. Struggles at times, but good starts overall against a very good lineup, a very good lineup, and then go ahead and measure them against the Giants, who, just based on projections, don't have as good a lineup and say, well, they're that guy. And they're not the guy they were against the Astros. And that's what I've seen some, I guess. And I just don't know why, you know, why we're doing that. Why the first start was, oh, that's what we expect from Lance or Lucas or whatever. And then you see the second start, it's, ah, they're cooked. This guy's going to, you know, you got to let him, you know, I, it's confusing to me. Now, dealing with the Michael Kopech start, right, the home opener, that's a different, boy, am I going to do that? Yeah, that's a different kettle of fish. I don't know why that phrase popped into my head. I don't know that I've ever in my life used the phrase, that's a different kettle of fish. But here we are, right here on White Sox Weekly, talking about a kettle of fish. We'll talk about Michael Kopech when we come back, because that's much more germane to the conversation. This is White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Waddle and Sylvie, 2 to 6 weekdays, ESPN Chicago. Students, it is easier than ever to get your friends together for a White Sox game. Sign up for student steals alerts and get exclusive access to lower-level ticket offers starting at just 9 bucks. For more information, visit WhiteSox.com slash student or text student to 244-769. That's 244-769. Just text student. 9 bucks. That's a 9 bucks. Get yourself to a ball game. My word. I wonder what kind of program I got to enroll in to get myself a student discount for a $9 White Sox game. I mean, listen, I know I go to games and everything, but like, I, that's, that's the kind of deal I'd be into if I were still a student or wanted to be a student again. So we were talking about the White Sox start to the season from the pitching side of things. Spent the first hour or so talking about the offense. Things have checked out great there, right? A lot of boxes checked, a lot of things looking good, a lot of T's crossed, and lowercase J's dotted, right? Bats have been swinging it. For the most part, the White Sox have been healthy. There is an outstanding injury to Eloy Jimenez, and that is a big one offensively for this team. But, like we talked about earlier on in the show, they do have guys in Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger to form kind of a platoon to buttress that position just a little bit, to uh, to enforce it some, to slug. I mean, really, that's what you're looking at. You want Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger to tear the cover off the baseball and not have to worry about anything else. Just hit the ball very, very high and very, very far. That's good. Unfortunately for the White Sox, for the pitchers, the ball has been hit very, very high and very, very hard 
on a much too regular basis. Michael Kopech gave up four home runs in an inning against the San Francisco Giants in the home opener. It was a, it was a tough start, to be sure. He is a very, not just for this season, but for seasons to come, obviously a, a pretty critical part of what the White Sox wanted to be. When the front office, when Rick Hahn, when you know, anybody kind of talked about what this contention window for the White Sox looks like, you know, the window that opened at very clearly in 2020 and is still very much open right now, Michael Kopech needs to be a, a fairly big part of it, right? When you look at the near term, you need things out of guys, and Michael Kopech has shown you that when healthy, he can get you innings. Even if the pitch count moves up a little high, he's able with a good fastball to keep guys off the barrel and to get through innings. When he hasn't been healthy, and I'm talking about after the knee issue against the Rangers toward the middle of last season, he's still been able to pitch and keep you in ball games, even if the stuff and, and what he's needed to do to get hitters out changed fairly drastically. The hope was, coming into this season, that the knee issue, he had a, a, a cyst. There's a technical term, a medical term for it, but it's since escaped me. A cyst, you know, kind of in the back of his knee that he had removed. It kind of inflamed a ton last year. Uh, had that kind of dealt with and then taken out over the last offseason. That's gone. So should be fine and ready to go. Also, toward the end of last year, it was uh, revealed that he had a little bit of a shoulder issue, a minor one. That got cleaned up while he was down with the knee, and then the whole off season was was kind of this, you know, very much get back to you know rebuilding the body, right, and get back to you know the trajectory that had him as one of the most intriguing young arms in the game. All this goes along with you know missing the 2020 season, being a re- reliever almost exclusively for the 21 season, and now being relied on for a second consecutive year as a starter in the White Sox rotation. When the stuff is on, when the velocity is there, I don't think there's any question in my mind that Michael Kopech can be a top you know, one or two or three guy in the rotation, a top-end dude. I, I think what's been difficult to watch and, and difficult for him to kind of maneuver around has been dealing with the velocity at lower levels than 95, 96, and above. And instead, when he's throwing, you know, kind of the 93, 94 sort of thing, it's a little bit more difficult for him. It's, it's much more difficult at times for him to get around opposing hitters. That makes a lot of sense regardless of who you are. But for Kopech, I think what it looked like to me in the game against the Giants is that that problem got compounded a little bit in the middle innings and as those home runs got given up because stuff as you, you, you try DJ explained this really well on the broadcast as it was happening. So this is kind of where I'm pulling some of this from as he was trying to throw a little bit harder. Some of the breaking stuff really begins to flatten out, right? You don't have that depth, the drop on the slider, that curveball may not move the way you wanted it to. If you're throwing a, uh, a split, even and you're throwing it too hard, the velocity may just kind of, make that thing ride a little bit as opposed to drop the way you wanted it to. I'm not saying Kopech throws a splitter, a splitter obviously, uh, but pitchers who do often tell you that the splitter gets better as the uh, outing goes on because your arm gets just a little bit more tired and that splitter starts to drop a whole lot more, right? I mean, we've, we've had that whole conversation in the middle 2000s when everyone was doing a splitter-slider combination. Regardless, for Kopech, 
I, tomorrow's a big start. You know, I, I kind of see this as a as as something that's going to to matter a little bit here. And and it's not so much that he needs to go out and dominate hitters. It's not so much that he needs to go out and look like he did against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium in May of last year, where he. I, quite frankly, looked as absolutely amazing, like a guy with future number one potential in Cy Young contender kind of stuff. It was truly, I was there that night, and it was an absolutely incredible start against the best offense in baseball at the time with Judge and Stanton and everybody else in it. He dominated, absolutely dominated all night long. And the potential is there, but more, more of what I want to see is a little bit better. I know this is going to sound a little bit reductive, but a little bit better pitching, right? I think with Kopech sometimes, and, and maybe what we saw a little bit last season too in, in terms of how he had to pitch around things, if the curve wasn't there or if the slider wasn't there, then that pitch kind of got abandoned some. And when you are a three-pitch guy with one not working, then you very quickly become a two-pitch guy, right? I mean, that math is fairly easy. And when that fastball is not doing what that fastball has done in the past – then it's a little bit easier to just kind of sit there, maybe just ignore the breaking ball, and feast a little bit. So maybe sequencing becomes a little bit more important. Maybe mixing in a pitch that you might not be as confident on. I mean, if it's it's truly terrible and not working that day, then you got to pitch it. But maybe you do have to mix a little bit. Maybe you can start off speed a little bit. Maybe you can uh, pitch backward some in situations and get around some lineup that way. I, I think too, and we'll talk about the roster move the White Sox made yesterday um, after the quick after the break. And before we talk to Michael Huff, who's the director of youth baseball for the White Sox, a lot of cool stuff going on on that end of things for the White Sox organization. And we'll talk uh, what's going on with the White Sox with Michael as well. I, I think what's key here is for, for Kopech is making sure that you can kind of take your misses and pitch off of those as well. It's something I'll ask DJ a lot about when you know when he and I are doing the broadcast. Guy sets up on the inside half of the plate. Catcher sets up on the inside half of the plate. Guy throws, and it's a slider, but it misses way to the outside, right? Completely misses his spot. Well, the batter didn't know it was supposed to go inside. He saw a slider outside. So you got to pitch based on what he saw, not based on what you were trying to throw and kind of manipulate things that way. Guys can be successful there, kind of pitching in the micro. Um, And maybe that's uh, a better mix. Maybe that's a better approach for what Kopech can do Sunday against the Pirates. There was also a discussion after the game. It was very brief, and it was very uh, matter-of-fact. But Pedro Grafal was asked after the start whether Kopech, who gave up four home runs in in, in one inning, was tipping. A little bit, giving away what pitch may have been coming. I love Grafol's response. I thought it was we're gonna. It, it was it was accurate. It was honest, and it was move on to the next thing because you don't want to dwell on that if it is happening, and you do want to address it if it is happening. He said, "We look at that's part of every post start post mort, right? Like when we break this stuff down after every start, good or bad, we're making sure that we're checking whether pitches are getting tipped by our guy." I love that. I love that that's part of the due diligence. I love that he's okay saying that out loud. After he was asked about it again, I think it was the next day, he said, well, we looked at it, we addressed it, not going to get into the details, but we're going to move on. Because you don't want to let anybody know that you, that we found out he was tipping pitches and we changed everything. That would mess up the game plan going forward. You could, 
I bet I asked Mike Huff about this at some point later on today. You could if you wanted to. Let's say you were tipping pitches and the glove's too high when you're throwing a slider every time. You could, in your next start, set that glove high where it was the entire time you were there. Let's throw a fastball instead. Steal yourself a strike. I like this idea. So we'll see if that's been resolved. That'll be tomorrow's start and a big one for Michael Kopech as he looks to bounce back from a rough first of the season. 312-332-3776. That's the number. A reminder, Sox fans, head to the ballpark April 29th. The White Sox take on the Tampa Bay Rays at 610. First 20,000 fans will receive a White Sox hockey jersey presented by Guaranteed Rate. To purchase tickets, visit whitesox.com slash promos. When we come back, talk about the roster move the White Sox made yesterday and how the rules have been going in Major League Baseball. I'm Connor. This is the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitter at ESPN1000. Join us for Southside Mondays presented by United Airlines. Every Monday, home game, watch your White Sox rep Southside jerseys and honor small businesses making an impact on the Southside. Each specially priced ticket includes $20 in concession credit, and all fans receive 20% off Southside jerseys. To purchase, visit whitesox.com slash Mondays. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to White Sox Weekly. Michael Hoff, former White Sox outfielder, former big leaguer, and the current director of youth baseball for the White Sox is going to join us in just a couple of minutes. We'll talk about what's going on, how you can send your kid to a White Sox baseball or softball camp this summer. There are tons of them. And they're really, really cool. So you're going to hear from him about that in a sec. I mentioned during the pregame show yesterday and, and during post a little bit, the roster move the White Sox made, designating Jose Ruiz the right-hander for assignment and bringing up Jesse Schultons. You know, it's, it's a move that a team makes when there have been a lot of guys getting hit some, when uh, velocity specifically for Jose Ruiz is down a little bit, despite the really good World Baseball Classic that he had uh, for his team Venezuela. Um, Schultons too. I mean, this was kind of, I can't say writing was on the wall, but it was pretty clear with the way the starters have gone and, and not gotten terribly deep into ball games that the White Sox may be needing to make a move to bring up a guy that could give multiple innings to the ball club. Schultons made his big league debut yesterday at age 29, got his first big league strikeout. He pitched three innings, gave up one run, and in a big way, Pedro Gafal credited him for that for the game. He saved them quite a bit yesterday. It was in a big loss. It was kind of a mop-up sort of thing, a, um, a tourniquet, like Len likes to call it, in a situation where you pitch multiple innings, maybe in a blowout either side, and you don't allow the game to get much worse. Uh, that's, that's needed for a team like the White Sox at this point because you need your, your starters haven't gotten deep, and this bullpen has pitched a bit, and when it has, there's been a few too many walks, even in the series against the Astros where you took two out of four, and Jesse Schultons was able to come in and save you innings from other dudes. Schultons won't pitch for a while now. He threw over 50 pitches in those three innings. So that's going to be a couple of days before he can get back in. He started one game at AAA Charlotte. And like I always tell you, kind of throw out the results at AAA Charlotte because that place is an absolute bandbox, a launching pad, and it's very, 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 very difficult to pitch in. But Schultons threw well in spring training, and he'd been with the Padres organization for his entire run up until this point. So uh, he'd been, you know, one of the guys that Pedro had been keeping an eye on and is now with the ball club. Figured he'll probably get some relief work in the series against the Twins. I, I wouldn't imagine he's back up for tomorrow's ball game against the Pirates. So that's kind of the roster move there. The thing I wanted to also touch on here before we talk to Mike Huff in just a few minutes, 
the rules so far. First weekend, it's my first White Sox Weekly with you. Uh, I was on the broadcast on Saturday, so I haven't had a chance to kind of bring it up yet. I Listen, I think things are looking great. I really do. And I don't mean to be like a, you know, a homer or a, a, a shill or anything like that. I love the pitch timer so far. I don't mind the shift ban as much as I thought it would. I, we talked all offseason. I, I wasn't a fan of the philosophy behind banning the shift. I didn't think it was going to do um, what we wanted it to do. It wasn't going to give us the results that we wanted. So far, those results are a little bit mixed, and I, that's fine. I've, I've liked it. I haven't minded it. I like seeing hits bounce up over the second base bag and into the outfield for a knock. I like seeing left-handers be able to pull things on the you know right side of the infield and, and get themselves. I, I've really enjoyed it. I haven't noticed, really, truly, I haven't noticed the pitch timer during the course of action, like in the micro at all. Over the course of, yeah, I mean, we all notice these games are much shorter, on average down about 28 minutes or so than they used to be, and that's great. We've all seen that. But, like, while the game's going on, it is very rare that I see the pitch timer as an issue. There's really only been one White Sox scenario that I can think of so far, uh, and that's been the Tim Anderson ejection against Logan Webb when he thought he was being quick-pitched. That's a function of the pitch timer, but really it's the new rules that kind of got you know thrown in there and caused the issue and not actually the, the players themselves. So I, I thought that was interesting, too. I, I guess you could maybe come up with one other. There was a situation where Yasmani Grandal had to hop out of his crouch and head out to go talk to Reynaldo Lopez in a tight game against the Astros. I think it was the first game, and maybe again in the fourth. But but other than that, it has been handled well, and the timeouts have been used. The mound visits have been strategic. And I'm not just talking about the way. I mean, all over baseball. I think this has been, without with some you know small exceptions, a really good rollout of a handful of very difficult, in some cases, with the disengagements uh, and complicated rules. So, honestly, credit to the players and coaches for working through it. Hey, a White Sox 10-game ticket plan gives you the ultimate flexibility. Pick games based on your schedule and your budget. Don't miss any of the action in 2023. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash ticket plans or call 312-674-1000. Pre-game show is coming up right at 5 o'clock. Coming up next... We're going to talk to White Sox Director of Youth Baseball, Mike Huff. Don't go anywhere. It's White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Recap the game, Cap and Jay Hood, weekday mornings at 7. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight, and I am joined by Mike Huff, former big league outfielder of the White Sox, of course, and now the Director of of youth baseball for the White Sox. Uh, tons of information for your kids to get out to White Sox baseball and softball camps this summer. That's what we're going to share with you here. We're going to talk a little baseball as well. But as always, Mike, wonderful to have you on White Sox Weekly. Connor, great to be back. Great job, as always, for you, both radio and TV. And, oh, thanks. Uh, again, a lot of excitement on the Sox front, both good and not so good. Yeah, some up and downs after uh, some ups and some downs <laughs> yeah. after the series against the Astros and the Giants and a day into the Pirates series. But, um, you know, first and foremost, Mike, I, I want to get the website out to everybody, and we'll hit this a couple of times in case you're cruising around in a car and like, oh, my goodness, I, I should send my kid to a White Sox camp this summer. WhiteSox.com slash play and click the camps icon to find interactive maps of all the locations. And, you know, Mike, I, I want you to take us through the details of, of the camps 
specifically here in just a second, but what Sox fans and really every baseball fan should know is that if you live basically anywhere in like a 100-mile radius of guaranteed red field, there's a camp you can attend. There's some in the city. There's some way outside. We even stretch into northwest Indiana, too. So, Mike, tell them what, what they can expect when attending a White Sox baseball or softball camp this summer. Yeah, well, it's going to be four really fun-filled days that is going to be progressive teaching. We're going to take the kids day one and try to build on some very basic fundamentals on Monday, building on those Tuesday, starting getting into games on Wednesday, and even more games on Thursday, where Monday and Tuesday will be heavy instruction, Wednesday, Thursday will be you know 50% instruction and 50% fun in games. Uh, obviously putting everything in a format that the kids will hopefully be able to take things away from each day. There will be homework every night, and some of that the kids will be quizzing their parents on how to grip a baseball or, or how to catch a baseball just to make sure the parents are learning and teaching the kids the right way. But uh, it's usually a very fun four days. Tickets to a Sox game at some point in the summer. Some vouchers are there. There's going to be a hat, a shirt, and a whole bunch of White Sox giveaway stuff included in, in in the package for the camp that is awesome and i know i know you've seen a lot of signups over the winter for these camps there are yep. some spaces uh but if parents are interested kids if you're listening and you're like tagging on uh, dad's sleeve or, or mom's outfit like yeah, get me to a camp now is the time to sign up for these things yeah we have 54 so you think well that's wonderful like you said northwest indiana city as far west as yorkville as far north as Palatine, but of the 54, we already have about eight or 10 that are sold out. Uh, so there's a waiting list. But usually if you are trying to sign up in a location like a Lamont that's already sold out, there's going to be a camp in Oakbrook. There's going to be a camp in Woodridge. There's going to be a camp in Palos. There's going to be a camp close enough that if the parents would have driven 10 minutes one way to a camp, you're going to probably be able to find a camp 15 minutes in another direction. Because like you said, 54 camps. We're trying to sprinkle the Metroplex as best as possible. Yeah, I know you got a lot of age groups throughout the camps. I, I was wondering, Mike, since the last we talked, at what point in these camps and at what age groups do you as coaches start working with uh, different positions on the diamond for players, whether that's pitching or catching or you know all kinds of stuff? I'm, I'm sure at some level and at some, some age uh, – you, you try and focus on maybe infield, outfield, or what have you, but I would also guess, knowing you the way I do, that you've got kids playing every position that they can get their hands on throughout the course of camp if they're up for that. Oh, yeah. Monday and Tuesday, we're going to do some ground ball work, some fly ball work, some pitching slash throwing, some catching, definitely hitting. And Monday and Tuesday is heavy with that. To your point, once you get to that, second day, you can start to realize even kids, you know, as young as eight that are athletic, that have, you know, the real coordination, we can start to kind of take those kids and and, and tweak a little bit more what we're doing when we're working around balls or when we're working on fly balls. But just like you know, you know, every kid that plays short is probably going to catch a pop-up at some point. So when we do our fly ball drills, it's not like, well, this is just for outfielders. This is just proper technique, proper fundamentals in catching a fly ball, working on drop steps. Same with ground balls. Last I checked, a lot of ground balls go in the outfield. So, 
you know, even when we're in our outfield station, we'll be doing some ground ball work out there. But um, just as you said, you know, first couple days, heavy on the instruction, a little bit of everything. But then usually by the end of that second day, we can start to eyeball which kids as we get into those game situations and and with the infield and and outfield and especially pitching stuff, our coaches are versed enough to, to be able to take one older group uh, or one, again, more talented group of kids and, and push them a little bit further in the instruction that they'll receive. Talking with Mike Cuff, he's the director of youth baseball for the White Sox, a former White Sox outfielder. He's seen some time in the big leagues, of course. And I, I, I don't know that any of us, though, Mike, have, have really seen baseball this way that we've seen it in the pros so far. I, I doubt you guys are putting a pitch timer on anybody at the youth baseball camps this summer. Yeah, not yet. Uh, not yet. But, they're, but they're my goodness, pretty quickly, thank goodness. But, sure, yeah, you get it and throw it, that kind of deal. But, I mean, there is yep. – listen, I, I've really enjoyed the first week or so of big league ball. I had some hesitation uh, about all of the new rules being put in the same season. But I'll tell you what, I, I've really enjoyed the kind of product throughout the league. I, I wonder if you've changed – from your perspective, uh, based on you know just the week that we've actually seen, the, the ball in play that we've actually seen. No, I, I totally agree with you, Connor, and I think we've always been pretty much on the same page with this. I, I, I like the game moving. I like the action that's involved. I think putting all of these changes in in one year might be a little bit much, but these are adults, so they should be able to figure it out at some point. And they've got nine coaches, so if they can't, I'm sure one of the coaches is going to help them. But I like the pace of play. I like people being on their toes a little bit more in the infield. I like um, the fact that without the shift, you can be ready to pitch within the next 15, 20 seconds. So in that regard, I think the game is a lot more fun. The games that I have been to, two of the three here where I was actually out um, opening day with family uh, yesterday, really with with friends Tuesday uh, on Wednesday, you know, walking around at the kid zone and stuff. The voices that I'm hearing, uh, the, the the verbiage, the, the the comments, even hearing secondarily, um, every parent that. I've come across really enjoys the pace of the game and, and the kids are more focused and, and I think it does make for an exciting and a better baseball experience. Wanted to ask you about something that got talked about some after Michael Kopech's start against the Giants. Question was asked of manager Pedro Grafol, do you think pitch tipping was an issue here? And and pitch tipping came up really big when you Darvish was throwing for the Dodgers in the World Series, I believe it was against the Astros and then he got lit up and, and it was, you know, kind of let out afterward. Yeah, he was he was giving away a couple of pitches. Take us, you know, into the dugout. What what happens when you as a ball club and I'm not saying whether whether Kopech was or wasn't is kind of beside the point here, just generally speaking about, about tipping pitches. What do you guys start talking about? Who notices this first? Have you ever been in a situation where you come into a game scouting report on a guy is uh, you know, we know we know if he puts his glove here, he's got something like this. Kind of two different scenarios there as well, right? Yeah, it's well, in the old days when I played, there was usually the most veteran coach that was his responsibility. He was just eyeballing the pitcher. When they were out there, he was eyeballing the third base coach, trying to pick up signals on, you know, what's the indicator and and what does he touch for a bunt or for a hit and run. And we had a guy, Joe Nosick, that was incredible with that. But, yes, tipping pitches is something that's been going on since baseball first started. And, and the simplest way to think about it is if a pitcher has his glove right in front of his face, 
Um, and on a fastball, the glove stays really close to the face, and he goes his motion. And on a curveball, all of a sudden that glove opens up a little bit, so he's digging his hand a little bit further and curving his fingers around the ball. And then he starts his motion. As a hitter, as a coach, we're recognizing, hey, glove is closed, fastball, glove is opened, it's a curveball. Um, or the glove is up and down on a fastball. The glove is a little bit sideways when he's throwing a curve. He's in the stretch. It's above his belly button when it's a fastball. It's at his belt when it's a curve. There are lots of ways pitchers can give tells, and I hate to say this, and I found out about it after we got beat 93 by the Blue Jays, but when we lost to the Blue Jays in six games, uh, Jack McDowell, who got the Cy Young that, winner, that year, lost both of his starts. That next mm. year, I was traded to the Blue Jays. And I kind of went to them. I'm like, okay, how, how did you guys do this? Like, you know, McDowell is great against everybody. You beat him twice. And they're like, Mike, he tips his pitches. Oh, wow. We know when he's throwing his split finger. We know when he's throwing his fastball. So we're just sitting on it. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And now, again, Jack was a very good friend of mine, but then all of a sudden I'm in Toronto, he's in Chicago, then he's in New yeah. York, no offense, Jack, I'm not going to tell you. And, yeah, I don't have that many home runs, but one of them was off Jack McDowell. So, yes, people have been tipping pitches for a long time, and there's lots of ways. But typically there's one coach that's really looking at it when I played now with cameras everywhere. I mean, you can have people like right now in our baseball operations department that might be looking at, you know, the last three games that the three starting pitchers for Pittsburgh, you know, what did they do? And watching their last three starts to see if there's some tell that they do when they're throwing a curveball versus throwing a fastball. If if you're in that situation as a pitcher, let's let's say you're Darvish, you know, coming off the start that you did against the Dodgers, and everybody in the world is talking about it, or or, or you maybe you're Michael and and you did, you know, tip a thing or two. Is, is there a scenario where you could do that same thing? You know, kind of either hold that glove where you'd been holding it for slider, throw fastball, and earn oh, yeah. some strikes or steal some strikes? Can you can oh, you reverse yeah. spy this stuff? Yes. And when do you think you do it? It's in the sixth inning when you've got two guys on base and it's a one-run lead, and you've got two strikes on the guy. That's where you set him up. You're like, great. You know, when I flared my glove open, that was the curveball. Well, guess what? Two guys on, sixth inning. We're only up by one. I'm going to flare my glove, and I'm throwing a heater right on the inner half, and you're just going to be frozen, and it's going to be strike three. So, yes, if you can recognize when you're doing those tells, a astute pitcher will be able to use that against the team that had figured him out before. Um, game within the game. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Very true, Connor. So I'm wondering, you know, what what one thing, obviously it's been, we, we talked about it, some ups and downs for the White Sox, but Mike, if you had to pick one thing that has um, impressed you most, one, one player, one aspect, one uh, coaching facet that's impressed you most in the first week or so, uh, what might that be? Overall attitude of the team. Okay. I think with Pedro Gafal, guys hustling guys not asking for days off, guys getting after it. You know, Tim Anderson, you know, clearly getting quick pitched and, and arguing with the pitcher and getting tossed. Pedro's like, that's my man. You know, Mokada hustling. You know, Luis Robert just playing within himself. I think every starting pitcher, when they haven't gone deep enough, taking accountability, um, I love the overall attitude of this team, and I think it bodes very well over the course of 162 games. Mike, as always, love talking with you. Appreciate your perspective on the game. And a reminder 
For kids and parents out there, WhiteSox.com slash play is the link. Get yourself out to a White Sox youth baseball or softball camp this summer. WhiteSox.com slash play and click the camps icon. You get a whole interactive map of everywhere the White Sox and the youth baseball organization will be for a camp this summer. Thank you so much, Mike, thanks so much. You are so welcome. Continued success out there. Love listening to you. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. That's going to do it for us here on White Sox Weekly. Thanks for calling. We'll be back next week. The White Sox pregame show is next. The White Sox and Pirates play game two of this three-game series. It's a big one. Sox need a win. Stay right here. A lot of White Sox baseball coming your way on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network.